And it's part three in the third and final part on the executions of December 8th, 1922. Coming up later, and as we approach the 100th anniversary of the death of Liam Lynch, Dublin historian Gerard Shannon talks about his forthcoming biography on the man entitled Liam Lynch to declare a republic. But first I'm joined again by Coleman Hennessy, who agrees that we should never forget the role of Common Amon, or the fact that it was doubtful if the War of Independence would have been won without their courageous contribution. Well, that's all true because the women, they delivered letters, guns, munitions under disguise and the women had an unbelievable contribution. They took risks, big risks. You know, Countess Maklevich took part in the rising. There were six women elected to the first dial. By the way, none of them voted in favour of the treaty and, you know, the treaty was only carried by seven votes, so if four people had changed their mind, it wouldn't have been ratified. So that's how, how close that was and, as I said, believe it or not, uh, none of the women voted for it because they had uh, issues from the past with their husbands and brothers being executed and things like that. Couldn't, couldn't accept an oath of allegiance to the Crown at the time, basically. It is said that Dick Barrett was not first choice as a representative from Munster to be executed the morning after Sean Hales was shot dead in Dublin. Coleman Hennessy says that according to former government minister Ernest Bly, there was somebody else in mind who at this point was nowhere to be found. As a reprisal for the assassination of Hales, the the Free State Government decided to execute the four senior IRA prisoners. Now, According to Ernest Bloyd, the Minister for Local Government at the time, Dick Barrett was the second choice for Munster. They prepared, uh, as you know, you see, there was one man out of each province picked. The preferred individual for the execution, according to Ernest Bloyd, was the famous Tom Barry, leader of the Flying Column. He was a um, man who successfully led the uh, men in the Kilmichael ambush, Crossbarry, and the uh, campaign against the Crown forces, inclu- uh, you know, which... Really, Kilmichael turned the tide in the War of Independence in our favour. Barry had been captured at the time of the Battle of the Four Courts. He didn't know that uh, they were taking over the Four Courts, so he came up to Dublin and attempted to gain access to the Four Courts, uh, disguised in his wife's nurse's uniform. Luckily for Barry, he had been transferred from Mount Jai in the autumn to Garmanstown Camp in County Mead, from where he made his escape thereby, according to Ernest Bloyd, avoiding execution. You know, and you have to think that, you know, if the leader, you know, we had the big centenary of the 1916 rebellion, and you have to think in hindsight that if some of these men that were, were captured in 1916, uh, for instance, Pierce, Connolly, Clark, if they were not executed at the time for some reason, as like De Valera, because he was uh, an American, that they may have actually uh, suffered the same fate. Born in Anglesborough in County Limerick on November 20th, 1892, Liam Lynch became Chief of Staff of the IRA. It was he who gave the order that any pro-treaty government TD who voted for what he referred to as murder legislation was to be shot on sight. 
Although he hadn't voted for the legislation, Sean Hale's TD was still shot dead in Dublin on Thursday, December 7, 1922. The resulting four executions the following day were a reprisal, but also a warning to others. Since Mita Ryan's biography on Liam Lynch 40 years ago, no other biography has been written since. Dublin-based historian Gerard Shannon now changes that. His biography on the IRA leader is due for publication shortly before the 100th anniversary of Liam Lynch's death on April 10th this year. Attempting to escape an encirclement of Free State troops, Lynch was shot and killed in South Tipperary. Gerard Shannon says that his biography on Lynch was always on his to-do list. Yeah, very much so. Um, I studied in DCU School of History and Geography in 2018 to 2019. I'd done a, an MA thesis there on Liam Lynch in the Civil War. And when I completed that, I saw there was an opportunity for a new biography of Liam Lynch. Um, there hadn't been one done in nearly 40 years. The last one that had come out in 1986 was uh, Mita Ryan's book, The Real Chief, Liam Lynch. And both Mita Ryan's book and Flory O'Donoghue's previous book that came out in the 1954, they've given us so much in terms of our understanding of Liam Lynch and who he was and so on. But since Mita Ryan's book, there's been the release of new archive of material, be it the Bureau of Military History or the Military Pensions, but also the release of personal papers belonging to Liam's contemporaries like Moss Toomey or Ernie O'Malley. And a lot of these papers have contemporary documents and correspondence of Liam Lynch, which give us an insight into his military thinking and his decision-making at the time. So I felt there was great scope for a new biography of Liam Lynch, which incredibly is now only the third lengthy biography ever written about him. Earlier we had spoken about uh, a biography on Rory O'Connor that would be pretty difficult because he left very little records of himself, particularly in the latter few years before his execution. How easy or difficult was this one? It was difficult in the sense of literally the total opposite of what we just said. Like, Liam Lynch left behind so much. I mean, we have personal correspondence he wrote to his family members and others, but, I mean, his military correspondence, particularly during the critical months of the Civil War, there's so much. I mean, you could literally do a daily timeline of Liam Lynch's communications during the Civil War. Now, there's been a publication that came out a number of years ago called No Surrender Here by Cormac O'Malley, Ernie O'Malley's son, and the historian Anne Dolan, which collects a lot of this correspondence that people can look at. So, basically, it's Liam Lynch's military comms to all his commanders through the Civil War, but it's not even like, you know, most of it. It's it's a very good sample of it, and it's a very lengthy publication, but that was my introduction to the scope of what's available out there for Lynch, because what we're very lucky is that, like, Liam Lynch wrote very lengthy comms. I mean, it's not just that he's giving orders and he's advising. He's also giving his commentary on political developments and military developments, too, so we get a great insight into his thinking, you know, in terms of how he deals with his commanders and what he's saying to leading figures, such as Eamon Devil and commanders such as Ernie O'Malley's and so on. And before any of us in this present generation are quick to judge, we should look back at Liam Lynch, how and where he was executed, and it gives you an insight into how these people lived their lives. Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, it's very important to try and understand Liam Lynch in the run-up to, you know, his death on the 10th of April, uh, 1923, because... Do you know, I mean, he's sometimes he, he's kind of dismissed as someone who just was fighting for the sake of it. You know, in some quarters, people said he was a fanatic. You, you kind of see that pretty much reflected in the Free State propaganda at the time. And I think there's just a lot more nuance to his thinking. When you look at Lynch in the last few months of the Civil War, he's not seeking peace like some of the senior officers. He's looking for a means to continue the fight. And it's very clear that Liam Lynch knew they were not going to win. He knew that the IRA were losing, but he's trying to find some means for them to continue the fight, perhaps set up a new base of fighting in the West, 
perhaps get heavy artillery from, you know, contacts in America and Europe. He had actually dispatched one of his leading commanders in Cork, Sean Moyland, to this very effect to try and secure this ground artillery. And when you look at the minutes of the final executive meeting that he attended in late March 1923, when him and other leading IRA figures met in around the Naira Valley, when you look at those minutes, you can see that, like, the vote goes Liam Lynch's way by one vote, his vote, to continue the war, because he has said that this ground artillery, this heavy artillery that Moyland is trying to get from the European continent is on the way. This could perhaps be a means for the IRA to you know, gain the initiative and perhaps, you know, carry the day in terms of the Republican fighting. Because, like, again, if you go back to the communications that Liam Lynch sent at the time, he writes to Devil Aaron in December 1922, and he shows his attention is to bring the free state to the point of collapse. And you can kind of see that reflected in some of the IRA tactics at the time, you know, the destruction of the railway infrastructure, which is probably the most notable aspect of it. But um, there is a degree of strategy to Lynch's thinking. But you can criticize the strategy. You can kind of say the strategy, you know, may, would not have worked in the long term. And certainly with the depleting numbers on the Republican side with the imprisonments and so on. There's no way the IRA could win, but, you know, it's just important to understand Liam Lynch's thinking. Why was Liam Lynch, you know, making these decisions? What did he hope to achieve? We have to understand that in order to understand the Civil War a bit better. So, what type of character was Liam Lynch? Some have described him as being ruthless, but Gerard Shannon believes that's an unfair assessment when you take into account the situation he was in and the tragic era that was 1922 and early 1923. I mean, Liam Lynch, he was one of the most prominent commanders of the IRA during the War of Independence. He'd cultivated a very strong military reputation. Like, even decades after the Irish Civil War, Richard Mulcahy, even though he was opposed to Lynch during the Civil War, called him the Lion of the Resistance Movement from 1919 to 21, the ideal officer that he held up as an example to all. You know, Liam Lynch, yes, he, he, was, he was certainly ruthless, but, you know, he was heartened by the guerrilla life he'd lived through a number of, you know, through those years. He becomes the Chief of Staff in the Anti-Treaty IRA in March 1922, and he, ironically, he would have been regarded as a moderate by the likes of Rory O'Connor, Lee Mellows. Like, Liam Lynch would have done much um, to help bring the both sides of the IRA together, the pro and anti-treaty factions, and this would have been much of the disgruntlement of O'Connor Mellows, who actually briefly deposed Lynch uh, as Chief of Staff in June 1922 to replace him by John McAlvey for a period, I don't think it was even three weeks until the outbreak of the Civil War on the 28th of June. When the Civil War breaks out um, with the collapse of a subsequent peace deal in Limerick several days later, um, um, you know, Lee Lynch doesn't promote any peace efforts. He doesn't kind of um, contribute to any. I mean, he, he's not interested. He wants to find the means to kind of keep fighting the free state and perhaps reignite the war with Britain. Like, that's his goal. Um, that's his, his hope is even for the two sides to come together against Britain, um, which he says in a letter to de Valera at the end of 1922. Jesse does get particularly ruthless, particularly with the onset of the executions. Um, he says to de Valera, you know, this is not an eye for an eye. This is just response to what they are doing to our soldiers and our people. He always refers to the legislation that allows the execution as the murder bill, and he has a list of TDs drawn up to be targeted. This is what is said to have contributed to the assassination of Sean Howes' TDs' homes that are burnt. I mean, it's a very tragic instance two days after the 8th of December, where the home of um, Sean McGarry, a pro-treaty TD, is burnt in Fairview up in Dublin, and his little boy, Emmett McGarry, is killed. Emmett's only seven years old, and de Valera writes to Lynch, and he says, you know, this has probably not helped us with sympathy from the public with the executions and Lynch goes the McGarry case was very unfortunate but that's the fortunes of war and that would have been an attitude held amongst the IRA leadership despite these tragic instances that's you know war unfortunately it's brutal it's hard and you know even into the early months of 1923 like with the guerrilla warfare diminishing like Lynch is trying to find some means he's 
continue the war. He's trying to acquire heavy artillery from the European continent. Sean Moylan is using those efforts there, and as well as that, he's trying to kind of, you know, come up with a new Republican base, perhaps in the south or in the west, you know, revive this idea of, like, Republican territory that they can fight from that had collapsed in August 1922, this so-called Monster Republic, even though Lynch himself never uses the term Monster Republic, this uh, term kind of retrospectively uh, given to that territory. Hypothetical question, Gerard. If the anti-treaty side had uh, succeeded in scuppering the treaty, their hope would be to bring Britain back into a war again. Would they have succeeded? Because definitely Britain would have been far better prepared on this occasion. I think Tom Barry once spoke about that and he said how difficult it would be to keep a volunteer army mentally and physically prepared in between battle or in between war for such a long period of time. Yeah, I, I think there is something in, in Barry's commentary there, and others have made kind of similar views. I mean, and you see this in kind of contemporary IRA correspondence at the time, that there was a view that kind of some IRA volunteers had lapped. Now, not all of them had. Like, you know, there was additional training, there was plenty of drilling. There were still importing arms, even though that was a violation of the truce as well. I mean, there was a preparation or expect, expectation of return to war. I mean, certainly the likes of Liam Lynch would have expected the treaty negotiations to break down and war with Britain would have begun in December 1921 again. A lot of them would have regarded the truce as a Respite, but see, I think I think that's the issue there. I mean, the fighting for the IRA had stopped for several months. I think it would have been very hard to get back in the momentum. Like in the meantime, you know, the British forces have got to know their enemies, so to speak. They've seen them up close the treaty negotiations. They've seen them up close during the truce, you know, liaison meetings and so on. They would have come to understand their enemy a lot better. So I think a kind of renewed fight against Britain around. I mean, the Free State government. When you look at the documentation and letters at the time from members of the cabinet and you know the 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 National Army commanders and, and Mulcahy and so on, they're worried. Like, they're worried about the momentum with, you know, even with the collapse of Republican territory in August 1922, with the prolonged guerrilla warfare into the closing months of 1922, there's a really big fear that this could collapse, like with the destruction of infrastructure and railways and so on, and particularly when members of the parliament are beginning to be targeted from December onward. There's a very real sense that they could lose this. They really felt that themselves on the free state side. I mean, if the anti-free had succeeded, you know, I think Britain would have been ready to step in it could have been a very ruthless and brief affair it could have been another prolonged guerrilla warfare it could have brought the two sides together but it's just I, I'm very reluctant to go very further when we get into these kind of hypotheticals we'll just never know unfortunately The Civil War was littered with atrocities tragedy irony and sadness on both sides if we can use an Irish phrase for completely different purposes its likes will not be seen again and we certainly hope not My thanks to all who took part, and to you for joining us. Back on Sunday evening next at 7. In between, have a good and a safe week.